John chapter 14. And I'm going to begin in verse 12. I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter from verse 12. John chapter 14, beginning verse 12. God's word says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am my, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you heard is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Well, this morning we embark upon what will probably be three weeks, and that probably isn't enough, it might need to be more, of studying the Holy Spirit. And remember, we talked about this cake that's sitting on this two-tiered platter, with the base of it being the Father, and the part that actually is whole, the stem that comes up, and then here's the Son, and providing the basis of our salvation, and that upon that is what we are called upon to believe. Believe in Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is. Believe the signs that he provided, believe the teaching there, uh, and that we need to put our trust in him fully, that we need to build around the structure that God gives us um, our belief. We need to add our response to his provision. His provision is for all men. That is very clear in Scripture. Uh, and those that deny that deny Christ himself, his deity, uh, his, his own words, and so they make him a liar. And so he died for all, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, the Bible says in 1 John. And so we find that uh, our calling is to trust in him. Jesus Christ has already started off in chapter 14 saying, believe in me. And the disciples are still struggling with the idea that Jesus and the Father are one. Just show us the Father will be enough for us. <laughs> Am I, do you not get it? Uh, well, they didn't yet. Uh, they wanted to, and they're going to move in that direction very quickly in the next few hours and weeks. 
Um, but they're going to move there very quickly so that by the time of Pentecost, we have them fully uh, committed to that. And certainly by the resurrection, I would consider most of them have made that conclusion, even Thomas himself, that whom we wrongly denote as the doubter. He's probably more of a cynic than a doubter. Let me see his hands. Let me see it. And so we find this uh, calling of Jesus Christ. Believe in me that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You must believe that I am him, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's going to come out again in our passages today a little bit, but uh, we're going to have to add our belief there. And lest you think that that belief stands on its own, it doesn't. Uh, we respond to the work of God the Father by sending the Son with belief. That is our response. So the Father is the initiator of it. He sends the Son. The Son is the initiator of our provision for our salvation. But the acceptance, the, the actualizing of that provision into our lives, it requires our part, our response, and that is by faith believing. And so this is a very clear understanding, I hope, for us that if someone brings you a provision, uh, that it is not substantially valuable to you until you partake of it. I can provide you a banquet meal, and if you sit there and play with it with your fork on the plate and never eat any of it, it does you no value, no benefit, no value to you. You must take and eat of it. And so, by faith we do that. The Father sent the Son, the Son provided for salvation, equal to the Father. He has obeyed his commands, he has made the provision, the table is laid out, and he says, come eat. But he cannot and will not require you to do that. He invites you to do that. And we know that he has done that with all of his people, all the way back to the beginning. He is, it was not by compulsion, but by invitation that God has a relationship with men. And so he goes, we go back to Abraham. Um, Abraham, leave your house and go where I tell you to go. An invitation. Abraham had to make that choice. Whether he would follow after God, and by faith he did. And as we go through the history of God's relation with people, it was always by invitation, not by compulsion. Even with his own people Israel, who made a covenant agreement with him as a people, as a nation, um, even them, he did not compulse to come. They went off and followed after other gods. He would judge them for that, but he did not ever force them to follow him. Rather, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who have killed the prophets, how often I would have wanted to gather you as a hen, her chicks under my wings, but you would not come. And so Jesus' invitation is to come to place upon this provision of this, of this incredible <laughs> uh, work of Jesus Christ, sent by the Father, designed by the Father, our faith. That we put on there our belief. And nestled in there, in response to your belief, comes this wonderful addition to the provision of your salvation. And I want to make this very distinct here. Um, that I'm not trying to set this up as a progressive salvation, but rather as instantaneous, but yet there is a continuation to it, a faithfulness that is required of us. And so as we respond to the gospel message, to the work of Jesus Christ by faith trusting in it, the Bible says that 
one of the response of God to our faith is not just the forgiveness of our sins, the cleansing and the crediting us with righteousness and to have a place with him. There is a further gift to us. And so God is responding to our response. And that's what a relationship, that's what a conversation is. I say something, you respond. I respond to what you said. You respond to what I said. And if you ever have a conversation with someone that is having their own conversation in their mind while you're trying to talk to them, and then they come out of the blue with something else, you go, you haven't been listening, have you? You're not really responding to me. You're in your own world still. And you realize you don't really have a relationship. And yet many of us have that with God. We have our own concepts that we are delving into. and We're not truly being responsive to God or listening to him. That's going to be very important when we come to this third person of the triune God. And so we come to, uh, what is it God's going to do? Well, you respond by faith, and God says, okay, you believe. You believe in my son, you're going to keep my commands, you love me, now I am going to respond to your response. And that response of God is a further gift. It would be sufficient for us to simply have the wondrous gift of our sins forgiven, cleansed from us, credit as righteousness, and granted a place in the kingdom of God. That's phenomenal. That's just incredible. Stop, and that's enough for us. But it's not enough for God. How good is our God? He just keeps giving. And as we respond by faith, obedience, as we respond by believing, as we respond to him, he just says, I want to keep loading it on you. And so the next act of God, which we can't, is not disassociated by a lot of time, it is as soon as we believe, God responds to that belief and says, not only are your sins forgiven, not only are you credited with righteousness, not only are you my children, not only are all these, uh, you have a place in my kingdom, but I'm going to give you Something else, someone else. I'm going to give you Holy Spirit. And he's going to dwell within you. And we're going to look at our passage here very shortly. And so this penetrates our belief system. And it is not born out of our belief. It's not that our belief brings the Holy Spirit, but rather it is God who brings the Holy Spirit and gifts us with him in response to our belief. So it is very clear here um, in our text, in verse 16 of chapter 14 of John, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. And jump down to verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. And so it is not that we are just on our own here now, we got to wait for the kingdom of God, and we're kind of in limbo, um, stuck among strangers without any help. Uh, with Jesus in the throne room of heaven, uh, who had broken open the seals, waiting for the sixth seal to be broken. None of that, but rather we have God, not in the flesh, not Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh, but rather in the spirit. And Jesus says, when I go to the Father, one of my first tasks is to send, is to send the Holy Spirit. That when you believe, I'm going to send him to fill your life. And so it is not that our, our belief um, is the origin of this Spirit of God. Some are teaching that, that somehow our, our faith is what produces the Holy Spirit in us. It is not. 
Rather, it is God who sends this person, the Spirit of God, into our life in response to our faith. And so it is, it is the, surrounds and, and penetrates our faith, but it is established very firmly on the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, having lived a sinless life, had died on the cross innocently, had made the payment for sin, had been approved by the Father, is then risen again and is ascended to heaven, from heaven, with that work completed. And it is described very well for us in Revelation uh, what heaven was like when Jesus Christ arrived uh, as a newly slain lamb. It's just a, a powerful presentation. The concept of that is in the future is just horrific. Um, because there's nothing greater than Jesus has ever done than this, to die for us. And it changed the songs of heaven there in, in Revelation 5. And so we come to uh, the, the power of Jesus Christ's arrival into heaven that, that Satan is cast out of heaven. He has no longer any access. He cannot accuse you before God any longer. Praise the Lord. He's no longer your accuser. Now he's your enemy on this earth. And that's in our text today as well. And so we have this wonderful gift from Jesus Christ sent to us. And one of the problems is that it's kind of mysterious. And in that mystery, there has been a lot of error been propagated about Holy Spirit's work. What is it like? And so there's a lot of Christians who are struggling in this area on multiple fronts. Um, there are Christians who are sure that if they don't have this emotionalistic uh, experience that are propagated by uh, largely Pentecostal groups, that they don't have the spirit. And, and I've been accused of that by Pentecostal. You just don't have this. Your church isn't spirit-filled. I was like, what does that mean to you? Um, well, you don't have this and this and this. I was like, well, who says that's the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, that's not on the list. Look up Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and tell me what is on the list of the fruit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Love. Are you telling me our church isn't loving? Joy. Peace, long-suffering, I'm putting up with you. I don't, I don't ever say that to them. <laughs> Gentleness. Goodness, kindness, self-control. These nine evidences of the Holy Spirit. But they want to ignore that and go to other passages and twist them and, and say, well, that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. So because of this, there's a lot of confusion. And then we have others that, that um, have taught that the, the Spirit is, is this mystical um, sensation that you get, that you're not in control, and he's in control, and that manifests itself in a broad range of expressions from those that laugh uncontrollably, oh, I'm drunk in the Spirit, and the slain in the spirit, and all these phrases that are not biblical at all. It says, do not be drunk with wine, but instead be the opposite of that which is filled with the spirit, um, which is the opposite. Self-control is fruit of the spirit. So the more self-control you have, not the least self-control. Then you have others who are over here and claiming to have these divine uh, revelations, through, that that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit if you don't have that divine revelation. Let me share with you, I have divine revelation. 
This is it. This is my divine revelation. God's word. The Bible. Do I require more than that? Not really. But the Holy Spirit has a relationship between me and this Bible. Between me and the word of God, there is a mediator. Just as Jesus Christ is a mediator between us and the Father, uh, we're going to look at the mediating role of the Holy Spirit between us and God's word. So that we are dependent upon him to, as the Bible says, to eliminate us, to turn the light on. Because we look into God's word and often are looking at it in the dim, in the dark. And so do we rely upon the Holy Spirit as we get into God's word? And, and more and more of our preachers are relying less and less on the Holy Spirit and more and more on themselves and other authors uh, to the point that some of them just get their sermons mailed to them on a regular basis, which has been available for all of my preaching life. Um, there were sermon suppliers that would send you your sermons once you know you could get a year's worth of sermons and how easy is that? Someone else, I trust someone else's study. Um, and I n- could never understand that. Why am I not wanting to spend time in God's word? That's the whole point of my ministry. That's the joy of it. So we have a mediator. It is not other men. It is not authors of books. It is the spirit of God. It is a mediator between God's word and us that we might understand it and open our eyes to it. And we're going to see that this morning. And so we have him, and, and I want to just share with you that the Spirit is not that mysterious. <laughs> and it's not that hard. Uh, our problem is that we are a little dull in our spiritual senses to recognize him. I, I, I'll say that again. We, the problem is we are dull in our spiritual senses to recognize him. And um, we forget sometimes that we have the same Holy Spirit in us that the apostles did. Uh, We have the same opportunities of his work in our lives as we see throughout the church ages. And the determining factor is not the Spirit of God. He is the same. He is faithful as divinity, as God. He does not change. Uh, he is not lax. He is not uh, prejudiced in that sense. But we have, again, the conditionalities that are going to be presented here in John 14, 15, and 16 that are going to impact not only our prayer life, but our walk in the Spirit. And so we have here uh, another support, a structure that's given to our faith. If the faith is the cake, and we know cake is squishy and soft and moist, um, but the structure, the, this cake plate underneath it that we've been talking about, and now we have these columns going up in another plateau that's structurally sound, called Holy Spirit. So what does the word spirit mean? You know this, I think, for the most part. Uh, the word spirit in uh, Greek really talks about breath. In the Hebrew, is literally your throat. That the Spirit means your throat. It is about a man's life, and what goes through your throat is not only food, but also air. And so it involves that whole idea of the breath of God, uh, the life that is there, um, and the, the, not just the respiration, but the whole concept of the breath of life. And the Spirit of God is described as his breath. 
And we know that it is uh, an important aspect of God that we should be attentive to. Uh, Jesus Christ is very powerfully presenting him here. Uh, interesting, because in the Greek, everyone has breath, both men and women. All of you have breath, right? All of you have spirit. There is a spirit within you. All of you have that. And so the, the Greek word for breath or for pneuma, uh, for spirit, is neuter. That is, it is neither masculine nor feminine, and so it applies to both. And so we use neuter nouns, and pneuma is a neuter noun. Pneuma, and you get pneumonia from that. Where you, Pneumonia is lung disease, your breath. All right, so pneuma means breath or spirit. And so we have this neuter noun, which means in Greek that everything around it should agree with it in gender. So all of the verbs associated with this should all be neuter. And then we would understand it as a thing. But Jesus Christ consistently, every time he talks about Holy Spirit, never uses a neuter verb. He always uses a masculine verb, which means spirit is a person. He uses the personal terms. And this is uh, shared again, uh, even when we go into Thessalonians, we talk about uh, the one who is uh, restraining, the restrainer, again, using a neuter noun with a masculine verb, and that's really bad grammar. If I'd used that grammar in my Greek class in college, I would have gotten marked off. Bad grammar. But Jesus Christ used it because it's correct, because of its application. So we are talking about a person of the Godhead, Holy Spirit. We put the the before him, and that is a mistake. They refer to him as the Holy Spirit, unless you're trying to isolate him. By the way, in the Greek, if, you're, if I were to bring my Greek, every name has the in front of it. The Jesus, the the. So it's there. The the is always there, um, because the article has to be there in Greek, because that's their structure. Uh, that's their syntax. And so, that's not a tax for sin. That's order of words. Sorry, I should. We're not really good grammarians here in New Mexico, so I have to use the term. It's S-Y-N-T-A-X. Okay, syntax is the order of words. Okay, noun predicate, or subject predicate, subject verb predicate is our syntax. In Greek, they had to have the thing. And so, yes, the the is there, but also the the is before Jesus or the Christ, too. We don't always translate it because we recognize it. And so we're talking about a person, not a thing. And much like the Father and the Son, in fact, identical to the Father and the Son, the Spirit functions similarly. Just as the Father and the Son are gentle, that is that they are inviting you into relationship and not compelling you, compelling you into relationship, the Spirit himself gently works within his uh, residence. And that's going to be borne out in, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 7, or, we, or 6, I'm sorry, right? Don't you know that your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? I spoke of that two weeks ago. Um, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you are the temple of God. God who? The Spirit dwells within you. So let's look at our text today. We have two here in John chapter 14. We have another one in John 15. We have another one in John 16. John 16 is an extensive one that we're going to have to spend some time on. But let's discover a little bit about Holy Spirit this morning that uh, we'll understand his 
origination, his purpose, and his uh, and our relationship with him, how we ought to engage him. And before we do so, I'm going to remind you of our objective. Remember the top of the cake, the, the icing on top of the cake. What is our objective of all of this? What is God's objective for you? That you have his love, peace, and joy, right? That's our goal. So we're on our way building up to love, peace, and joy. He wants you to have fullness of joy. He wants you to have perfect peace. He wants you to have the love of the Father. He wants you to enjoy these three things. And the mechanism by which we're going to get there requires the work of Holy Spirit. Um, and this isn't just John or Jesus. Let, let's, uh, let's go to Romans. Romans 15. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'm going to do it. I already had you turn to John. Uh, I'm going to inter- insert here. Romans chapter 15. I want you to see these all put together again. And I might take you back there in a few weeks. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Paul has just gotten done talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the gospel and the wonder of that. And then he says in verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of who? Holy Spirit. And here we have the same elements that we are studying kind of put together in a very small little nutshell of these elements. We want joy, we want peace. It has come in believing. Believing is our part, hope and peace and joy. These are things that God wants to provide us, and it is uh, it's going to abound in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what God wants for us. And so we are trying to work our way, or, or I don't mean that we're earning this, but that we are uh, delving through this, this layers of God's provision and our response to that provision, that we might gain his ultimate desire for us, which is peace, joy, love, hope. So let's look at it here in John 14. We're going to come back to verse 15. I want to pick up in verse 16. I will pray the Father. He will give you another helper. And the word helper there, if you have something in your margin, is comforter. The word in Greek is paraclete. And a paraclete is someone who comes alongside and holds you. It is a crutch, uh, a human crutch, uh, a personal crutch. It is when someone ha- is struggling to learn to walk, and all of you provide this for your little children, right? You are their paraclete. As they're learning to walk, what do you do? You stand up. You realize you have to let them go, but how far away do you go? You don't leave them very far far you they got to learn to walk and sometimes you hold their hands you hold them up you're trying to get them strengthened and you're trying to get the muscles developed and then their balance their coordination all these things have to come together in their minds and we're right there beside them helping them we're holding them up that when there's an injury there's someone come right alongside you and you and they carry you off the field or carry you to the finish line they are your paraclete they have come alongside right beside you and are helping you. That's what the word entails. And so it is sometimes translated comforter, um, helper, 
um, but is one who comes alongside to help. So this is the Spirit's responsibility. This is how he is defined by Jesus Christ. He's going to use it here. He's going to use that term again uh, as he goes through and describes him as the helper or the comforter, uh, the paraclete. And I want you to notice the purpose. So he, the Father, he's going to be pray the Father. The Father is going to send the helper. Uh, Jesus Christ himself is going to say, I'm going to send the helper. And we understand that that's okay. Because Jesus and the Father are what? One. All right. So that's clear in your mind. Uh, you don't have to join some of the disciples that just show us the Father and we'll be, else be sufficient. All right. So we're, we're, we're a little bit farther along than Philip and the other apostles are at this point. So we understand that Jesus says, I'm going to pray the Father. The Father is going to send a helper. Uh, and what's going to happen? Well, the helper is going to do exactly what? the son did while he was on earth. And I want you to notice that. They were concerned about Jesus leaving. They were going to lose their mentor. They were going to lose their rabbi. They were going to lose their Lord. They have been following him for three years. He's provided everything. They have been basking in the power of the Spirit in him. They have been basking in his teaching uh, and all of his provision. It has been a marvelous journey, and they're about to lose him. And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And he's going to not only start this chapter off, he's going to end it as well with, don't be troubled. I don't want your heart to be troubled. Um, and so we're going to see this as a concern of Jesus Christ. You're going to lose me. But the one who comes is better than me in this role of helping you uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one is because he's going to stay with you forever. He is going to have a permanent place in your life. It says that he will uh, abide with you forever. We're going to describe that a little bit when we get to chapter se or verse 17. But then it also says that he is not going to just be with you. He is going to be in you. And this is different. God in the flesh cannot be in us. He can be alongside of us physically. But because Jesus Christ has taken on physicality, not just for 33 years, but permanently. Please grasp that the incarnation made Jesus 100% God and 100% man permanently. And so he could not reside in you, even though God is a spirit, and those that worship must worship in spirit and truth. Yes, but what is the spirit that's going to indwell us? And now instead of God looking across the table at me, I'm going to have God inside, in me. And Jesus Christ says, I am in the Father, and Father in me, and now the Father, we're all going to be in you. By what avenue? By the avenue of Holy Spirit. That is the mechanism, that is the person of deity that will be God in us. So not only is it a permanent thing now, it is a much more intimate, it's even more intimate than Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is in the flesh now. He is God in flesh. He has a resurrected body that he is in, and we recognize that, and so we see him, we have that uh, de description of him, but now we have a permanent indweller, and those two benefits, Jesus Christ says, it's better for you. 
It's superior. And so you should be wanting me to go because you're going to have something better. Now, we don't view it that way. Our view of the Holy Spirit is so wrapped up in the misinformation and and in the, the godly goop that men have added to it and that we don't view that. We think oh, it would be so much better if Jesus was just right here. And I could talk, how dare you? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> that has associations with something I don't want to associate myself with. Um, how dare we make that contention? You've just spoken against the Holy Spirit. That's dangerous territory. Because you can blaspheme the Father and you can blaspheme the Son. Jesus Christ says you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He is that wondrous. And so we have this very precious and very powerful gift of God that is enduring. It is present forever in us. And it's in us. Not beside us, not around us, but in us. What a wonder. And so no wonder, Jesus Christ, it's for your benefit that I go to the Father. Not just to complete my work, that is, is critically important, that Jesus Christ's work is completed all the way to the throne room of God where he takes the scroll and sits down and worthy is the lamb that was slain, is declared. Because now Satan is finished. He is destroyed, essentially. He is powerless in heaven to accuse us of anything. So we, there's that aspect. There's a secondary aspect. Jesus says, it is for your benefit because if I don't go away, the helper will not come. I need to go away or he will not come. And this is borne out for us um, again and again that this is the work that God intends for our preservation of our salvation. When the Philippians tell us that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. The mechanism, the person by which he does that is Holy Spirit. He is the one that God sends to support this. And so as we believe in Jesus Christ, we receive Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit provides this additional structure now that we are supposed to respond to. But let's look a little bit at his work. How, how does he do this? What does he do? How do I recognize him? He's going to be with me forever, and he's going to be in me, not around me. And we're going to, this takes us into verse 17. And verse 17 is a very, very important verse to understanding Spirit's role with the disciples and thus with us. I'm going to do it a little bit backwards. Um, I want to jump down to the middle of the verse a little bit. But you know him, for he dwells with you. We're going to stop right there. He's talking about the spirit of truth. You know him because he dwells with you. This is not a future tense. This is a present tense verb. He's talking to his disciples. He's saying, Holy Spirit, you already know him. Not in an in intimate, personal way, but in a knowledgeable way. You know him because he dwells with you. You say, wait a minute. Holy Spirit isn't dwelling in them. That comes in Acts chapter 2. That's correct. And that's why the next phrase is in the future tense. But we're going to deal with this present tense. He dwells with you. What is Jesus Christ communicating to them? Is that he himself 
is the carrier of Holy Spirit right in front of their eyes. That all the things you've been seeing in me, I do by the power of Holy Spirit. You know him because he dwells with you. Because not only, am, when you look at me, you're not only seeing the Father, you're also seeing the Spirit. Because I, you and I have been living together for these three years. You know the Holy Spirit. You know him. Because he's been dwelling with you. And this takes us back to understanding how human Jesus is, was, is, still is. How human was Jesus? Well, we find that he, uh, at his baptism, we find him receiving the Holy Spirit. Remember, he had a voice, audible voice, everybody heard. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Here comes the Holy Spirit, fills him, and it's from that point on that the signs and wonders begin. And when people come after him saying, you're doing this in the, in, in the power of Beelzebub. You're doing this in the power of Satan. What does Jesus tell him? No, I'm doing this in my own power. No, he doesn't. He says, no, you're committing an unpardonable sin. Because the miracles I'm doing are in the power of Holy Spirit. So when you accuse me of doing work by the power of Beelzebub, when it's really the power of the Holy Spirit, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What has Jesus just done? He's just attributed the power of his miracle working to the Holy Spirit. Why do you think he would say to the disciples, you're going to be doing greater works than me? Because the same entity that empowered him to do works will empower his people. We have the same authority and power dwelling within us in Holy Spirit as Jesus carried. So what is the problem? The problem is we're not perfectly attuned to him like Jesus was. We don't meet the qualifications like Jesus did. And we're going to talk about those in weeks, months to come. Sorry, you're just going to have to keep coming to get that stuff. So we have this fact that the disciples, whether they recognized or not, really did know the evidence of the Holy Spirit because it was the wisdom of God, it was the power of God that they saw in Jesus Christ. He says, you know him, you really do know the helper because you were at my baptism. Many of them were. And you even saw a physical manifestation of him for your benefit as a dove. They're going to see another physical manifestation of him one more time. And that is as a mighty rushing wind. Okay? And so it's not with your eyes, but now it's with your ears. With their eyes, they saw him at his baptism. With their ears, they're going to hear him at Pentecost as a mighty rushing wind. And so, and, and there's going to be flames, fire, the tongues of tongues they're going to have. Um, but we're going to see this manifestation, but it doesn't happen every time. It didn't happen for Cornelius. There was no physical manifestation. Just once, this coming uh, on Jesus, and then the, the initiation of the ministry Jesus taught um, at Pentecost. That time. It didn't come. There was no evidence that that was ever repeated. It was not necessary. Because the promise of God was demonstrated. So the disciples knew Jesus Christ had received the Holy Spirit. They 
and he had already spoken con uh, consistently that if you want to call upon by what power he does these things, it's not the power of Satan, it is the power of Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and so you already know him. He dwells with you present tense. I am right here with you. As long as I'm with you, you have this second degree separation knowledge of him. You see him in me, but he's not in you. You get to share the room with someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar? Is that a condition today? Do people get to share the room with someone filled with the Holy Spirit? Come on, help me out. Just not even. It's okay. Yes. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and people around you should know him by your life. Why? Because you have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. Bam! There it is. And these are things that are not, these are beyond human capacities. We're talking about loving your enemies. We're talking about uh, loving them that spitefully use you. We're talking about loving Democrats here. I had to throw that out there just to let you know it's okay. We're talking about loving homosexuals. We're talking about loving people who hate us and want us destroyed. Supernatural love. We're talking about supernatural peace. That things happen and it doesn't, it doesn't shatter us. It doesn't trouble us. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's peace. Are you showing the evidences of Holy Spirit to the people around you? They should know Holy Spirit because he dwells among them, though he doesn't dwell in them. They, they yet have him, they don't have him in them, but they can know him because he dwells with them in us. And that is why when we get to Thessalonians, it says there's a restrainer and that, that the wrath of God will not come until the restrainer is taken away. Why is that? And that's the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, which means the rapture of the church has to happen before the man of sin is invested in power and the wrath of God is poured out. Why? Because when we walk into a room as a Christian, you are showing the Holy Spirit. They can know him because you dwell there. And the Spirit dwells in us. And so Jesus Christ says to his disciples, you know the Holy Spirit, you don't realize you know him because he dwells with you. And it's phenomenal thought that Holy Spirit dwells with everyone in your home, whether they're a Christian or not. The Holy Spirit dwells with everyone in your office space, whether they're Christians or not. The Holy Spirit dwells there if you're there. And so he says, you know him, but the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, is what the statement said earlier. The world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you. You have seen him in me. They refuse to see him in, in me. 
And this is the condition of the heart that Jesus is talking about, those who see all these signs, who hear all this teaching, and refuse to believe. Specifically, in this instance, it was the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, those that were planning to arrest him that night. And it included one of his own twelve. Judas Iscariot, who was gone by now. One of his intimates didn't really know Spirit because he refused to see him, refused to recognize him, refused, refused to acknowledge that your lifestyle has anything to do with God in you. And you will encounter people that that will be their response to your testimony of lifestyle in whatever environments you are. They refuse to acknowledge that God could have anything to do with how you live. Just as people refuse to acknowledge that God had anything to do with Jesus. They were going to stone him. And here's what they'll accuse you of. It used to be that they would just accuse you of being a Jesus freak. Well, that was a great testimony because that means that they're acknowledging that there was a God element involved in it. Now they don't do that. They just say, you're self-righteous or you just think you're goody-goody. You think you're better than us. I don't think I'm better than anybody. But I know God is better than everybody. And if God is in me, it should exude and they should see him. The evidence. And so we find that he dwells with you. And then we go to the future tense. And will be in you at the end of the verse. In the future, he is going to be resident in you. He already promised that it's going to be permanent. It's going to be forever. He's going to dwell in you. Right now, he's with you. Soon, he will be in you. About 43 or 44 days. He'll be in you. 53 days, sorry. He'll be in you. Wow. God in us. Emmanuel is God with us. This is God in us. Not a spark of deity stuff like the humanists do, but truly God taking up residence in us whereby we are his temple. This body becomes his dwelling place, his abode. He will abide with us forever. And so, who is this that's coming? What is the strength of his work? And we want to look at this very quickly. And like I said, I think it's going to probably take more weeks than I set aside for this. He's described as a spirit of truth. And let's begin there. The helper is the one who brings the truth. Look at, jump ahead to verse 25. It says, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. Wow. He will lead you into truth. This is the primary work of Holy Spirit to establish your faith. I want you to notice it does not say he will lead you into these experiences. He will lead you into these emotional events. He will get you all worked up inside. No, where he will lead you is into truth. That is his primary means by which he strengthens our faith. He is the spirit of truth. And it is no mistake that when we look through the armor of God, there is one offensive weapon, and it is called a sword, and it isn't your sword. It is the sword of the spirit, who is the word, 
of God. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's tool. It's His weapon that He works in us. And so the primary means by which Holy Spirit pulls together and solidifies and strengthens and sets up the layer for our Christian life is the truth. He leads us in the truth. He illuminates our mind and our lives, our eyes, to the Word of God. And that is why every time we open God's Word, we should say, Lord, help me by your Spirit. Lead me into your truth. I'm not going to go sitting here going through here. i got to find something that goes along with what I think. That's why I don't preach that way. You can. I once demonstrated this to a group of junior high kids at camp. And I preached about 12 minutes on prayer. And I had them, after 12 minutes, raise their hand if they agreed that everything I said was biblical, and they all did. And I had prearranged, and unfortunately many of the adult counselors did too. I had prearranged for one of the youth pastors to stand up and interrupt me. After I asked them all to raise their hands that they could see that that was the truth from God's word, uh, I had one of the youth pastors down and said, I don't agree with you in the middle of the service. Can you imagine what these kids thought of that? <gasps> Stone quiet. They're all, what's going to happen now? And I, I, I could have just, I just stared at him. And they're all, they had never had that happen in their lives. Someone stand up and disagree with the preacher right in the middle of his sermon. Maybe we need to do more of that. I don't but Only if it's wrong, and you're right. Uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> after letting this really, <laughs> the quiet was so nice, I just didn't want to interrupt. No. Um, we stopped, and I just said, I actually told him to do that, because what I've given you is error, and you all agree that it was from the Bible. Why are we not able to distinguish truth from error? See, the Holy Spirit's primary responsibility is to come in to lead us in truth. He is the spirit of truth. If you want to worship him, you got to worship him in spirit and in truth. They are linked together. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, the truth. Illuminate all of this. He leads us into truth. He teaches us. Here are men who had been following Jesus, but they were dull in their understanding. Jesus had been teaching them through the power of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He had been teaching them, and they had been listening, but they haven't grasped it to the point that they said, just show us the Father, and it will be sufficient. Have I not taught you that I and the Father are one? They're still pretty dull. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, and he comes in you, and he abides with you, he will teach you truth. How do I develop the Holy Spirit in my life? You come to God's word, his revelation, and you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit and say, oh Lord, teach me your truth. But the fact is we have no relationship with the Holy Spirit because we have no relationship with his word. You don't pray the Holy Spirit to lead you into truth because you're not in his truth. You're not asking him, Lord, lead me into your truth, and you're not spending enough time in God's word for that to happen. Um, I got two minutes here. Can you lead me into your truth somewhere? We have no systematic way of reading it, studying it, meditating upon it, memorizing it, bringing it into our lives. We're trying to teach that to your children through our Word Life Clubs, to spend time in God's Word. 
And we begin that time by praying, Lord, lead us into your truth. This is the Spirit's work. And as we are, this is, this is a relationship. Remember, God is a person, so we relate to him. It's, he gives, and we respond, and he responds, and we respond, and he responds. The Spirit is going to open up every truth to you the first night. But he will open up one truth to you. And the problem is we often don't like the truth he opens up to us, Right? Oh, I, don't, I didn't want to hear read that. Is that what that means? I, got, oh, I don't know about that. It is troublesome to me that we have inserted all of these other evidences for the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit and none of them are connected to just getting on our knees before God with his word in front of us and saying, lead me into your truth. You want to get the Holy Spirit more active in your life? The first thing he is attributed with is to lead you into truth. But too often we're like Pilate who said, what is truth? And walk away. Wash our hands. Nobody can know it. Everybody has their own interpretation. There are lots of applications of God's word. There's only one interpretation of it. It is truth. There's only one truth. But there are many teachers. But there is one capital T teacher, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so a lot of times when people tell me there's all these interpretations, I say, well, are you talking about interpretation? Are talking about application? And now when we get an interpretation, well, let's talk about who we're talking about. Um, uh, you tell me there's other people interpret it different? What do they interpret it as? What do you interpret it as? And I've had the privilege as a professional minister um, to have lots of time to study God's word and to have training in it. And it doesn't mean I had all every answer. So let me, let, let's hear it. And I'm like, what? Where did you get that from? The Spirit of God cannot lead you into that kind of error. So therefore it came from somewhere else. So we find this Work of the Holy Spirit. How are you going to develop your relationship with the Holy Spirit? He has number one purpose, to teach you. You take God's word, that's his sword, that's his tool. You bow before him, you say, oh, Spirit of God, I want to know your truth. And I'm going to invest myself into the reading and memorizing, meditating and studying of your word. And not just five minutes or three minutes, I'm going to, you know, I eat three times a day. I spend an hour and a half at least at that, not counting preparation time. Um, can I spend that kind of, can I spend some time with you in your word? And by the way, you don't always have to have your book open to do that. That's why you memorize God's word, so you can do that kind of work even when you're not, have access to your Bible. And I praise the Lord for the amount of scripture that I've been enticed to memorize. <laughs> That's what our children's program does. We entice your children to memorize scripture. <laughs> Some people think we pay them to do it with candy and points, but we entice them. We're trying to encourage them. So I was enticed with awards and candy and points and all that stuff when I was a kid to memorize a host of scriptures, and it has been a great benefit. But we want to be in God's word and submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and ask of yourself, because number one job is to teach us, and the number two job is still not there Real quick, uh, my time is up and this music has started. So 
Verse 26, <laughs> this is really precious the older you get, by the way, the last phrase that Jesus says here in this verse. Um, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I said to you. As you get older, that's more precious to bring to your remembrance. Lord, please remind me what I already know, what you've already taught me in the past. Bring it to my remembrance. The disciples has heard God's teaching many times, but they needed to recall it. And this is one of the things the Holy Spirit does. You want evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life that you remember what God has taught you. If they are distant from you in your life and you live your whole life and, and you never think about what you've been taught from God's word, including this, the, the morning messages, the Sunday school class, your last mile ring, your devotions, whatever, um, they just don't come across your thinking, then there's a disconnect between you and the Holy Spirit that needs to be repaired or you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. You're just dwelling with people who do. You can still know him and see him and, and recognize him, um, and, but that doesn't mean he's in you. So you need to distinguish that. We have a lot more work to do this, over this in the next few weeks. Um, bear with me as we work our way through these passages of schools and prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. We pray as we respond now in praise and singing and in fellowship that we might uh, just be thankful people for this wondrous gift you've given to us, Holy Spirit, to abide in us forever. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.